This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. You know, when something big happens up in the sky, we like to give you a heads up on it. Did so on last week's program, alerting alerting you, the listenership, to the fact that there would be a transit of the planet Mercury in front of the sun on Monday. Taking us up on the suggestion that this might be checked out was Elise, who wrote us to inform us of the fact that uh, it was was interesting to see and that, boy, the temperature should drop when Mercury passed in front of the sun, which is, I hasten to point out, a bit of astronomical humor. Mercury is very, very small in relationship to the sun's surface and could not possibly block out enough sun to cool things off. This, of course, is not the case when our moon passes in front of the sun, blocking it out completely, as reported in August of 2017 here on Radio Parallax. When that happens, things do get a little bit chilly. The drop in temperature as the total eclipse approaches is quite appreciable. And if you'd like to check this out personally, you may want to... uh, Consult your local travel agent about getting down to Chile or Argentina in December of next year. And so happens that Radio Parallax's own most favored travel agent will be coming on the program probably next week to talk about a most provocative subject, the current state of surveillance that is going on in China thanks to the ability of artificial intelligence and biometric measurements to keep track of everyone. A lot of knuckleheads here in America that think this is a great idea and advocate for it. I got a feeling by the time Stan gets done on next week's program, uh, we will hopefully convince a few of them to uh, wake up and smell the coffee. And for the next item, Mr. Moulin, I think we need some appropriate music. it when the opportunity presents itself. And the opportunity here is that Neil Young, the author of that fine little bit of music, says his U.S. citizenship application has been stymied by his admitting honestly on the application that he does use marijuana. According to CNN, Neil Young wants to become a U.S. citizen and he wants to vote in the 2020 presidential election. We feel pretty certain that he doesn't want to vote in the 2020 election to vote for Donald Trump, but that's, you know, we, we could be wrong. According to Mr. Young, when I recently applied for American citizenship, I passed a test. It, it was a conversation where I was asked many questions. I answered them truthfully and passed. Recently, however, I have been told that I must do another test due to my use of marijuana and how some people who smoke it have exhibited a problem. CNN notes that according to guidance issued by U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services last, as of last April, an applicant who is found to have violated federal law on controlled substances, including marijuana, could be found to lack, quote, good moral character, unquote, which is one of the general requirements for naturalization. Now, it's our hope here at Radio Parallax that the good people working for the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services will not be unduly swayed by all those Cheech and Chong movies. 
The USCIS told CNN it could not comment on whether Young's application had been held up, citing privacy protections. <laughs> we, know, we, know, we know what sticklers the U.S. government is for our privacy. But uh, said the agency was required to make judgments on cases based on federal law. They said, quote, individuals who commit federal controlled substance violations face potential immigration consequences under the Immigration and Nationality Act, which applies to all foreign nationals, regardless of the state or jurisdiction in which they reside. They went on to add that federal law does not recognize the decriminalization of marijuana for any purpose, even in places where state or local law does. Holy mackerel. Our former Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, once said early in the Trump administration that good people don't smoke marijuana. And apparently he's trying to climb back into his U.S. Senate seat down there in Alabama, where, as I understand it, white lightning is still the greatest thrill of all. No, wait, that's Oklahoma. Never mind. I heard Ken Burns being interviewed, by the way, on Michael Krasny's excellent uh, program on, on uh, KQED a while back, where he revealed the fact that although Merle Haggard did put that line in his song, Okie from Muskogee, he, in fact, regularly enjoyed the use of cannabis. Anyway, let's look for some good news, shall we? There's some, there is some good news on the electoral front. The voters out in Brentwood, who were facing a, uh, a ballot measure that would have allowed the expansion of real estate development into an area where that had been proscribed, turned down the initiative. Anyway, it does warm our heart to see real estate developers at least once in a while taking it on the chin. And of course, we'll have more to say about America's most prominent real estate developer, Donald J. Trump, shortly. And there's some good news in the wildlife front. Apparently, a tiny deer-like creature, which is about the size of a rabbit, has been photographed in the wild for the first time in three decades in southern Vietnam, which is delighting conservationists who feared that the species was extinct. The animal is known as the chevrotaine, also called the Vietnamese mouse deer, was last recorded more than 25 years ago when a team of Vietnamese and Russian researchers obtained a dead chevrotaine from a hunter. Great. Well, let's, let's hope this isn't the last one, okay? But anyway, 2019 and definitely not extinct. Well, or not yet anyway. Our fingers are crossed. In an item on the environmental front that seems like it's good news but causes me to puzzle over the item is this little piece that was in the Sierra Club magazine, which is known, oddly enough, as Sierra. piece by a woman named Heather Smith with the title, Peak Baby is Closer Than You Think. Now, the thrust of this piece is that global birth rates appear to be falling. Global fertility is dropping, which the article notes uh, goes hand in glove with women being better educated. Some of the stats are interesting. Before 1960, the percentage of women who had a baby before age 19 was 86%. By 2017, that had thankfully dropped to 43%, which still seems pretty high. The article also notes that 12% of women around the world of reproductive age who want to use birth control have no access to it. The article notes that in 1950, a few years before... uh, I made my first appearance on planet Earth. The world's population stood at two and a half billion. It has currently surpassed 7.7 and continues to climb. So yes, there are now three mouths to feed on planet Earth for every mouth there was as recently as 1950. 
Now, it's supposed to be the good news at the bottom of this article is that, uh, that according to the United Nations, the human population will peak out around the year 2100. Well, so far so good. The part that's not so good is the number they think it's going to peak out at, 11 billion. Of course, a lot of folks think that eco-catastrophes are going to catch up with us and uh, prevent us from getting to that number. There surely will be a certain number of plagues in the future as we see the ocean levels continue to rise. But wouldn't it be nice if we could achieve our goal of a lower population through birth control instead of through death control? Of course, when I say that, that's assuming that we actually have a goal. I would ask you, aside from the, I think, pretty much moribund group, zero population growth. you know anybody out there who's advocating for a control of our rampant population growth? Conservatives don't seem to embrace this idea. And neither do liberals. It would seem that desperate times should call for desperate measures, but, uh, well, I guess they do in India and China, where things are a little bit out of control. Both of those nations have tried to institute some rather uh, strict policies on uh, reproduction. But India, in spite of these efforts, appears ready to overtake and surpass China as the world's most populous nation, in spite of having only one-third of its area to work with. And by the way, if you've never been to India, dear listener, go. My feeling is that once you've gone to India and looked around, nothing will ever seem quite the same. Although I must add in a rather scatological fashion that a regular Radio Parallax listener did inform me recently... You don't need to go to India to see people taking a dump in the street. All you need to do is go down to San Francisco. Anyway, that's all I'm going to say on that subject today. And Mr. Millen and I did both set out to see an Indian movie, which was uh, playing in a local Indian theater that was called Toilet. I dare say that it's probably only in India that you would see a movie (laughs) where the plot centers around the fact that a woman marries a man and then discovers that he actually has no toilet in his house and as a consequence, then seeks to break up the union. Apparently the groom, for his part, then embarks on a toilet-building enterprise in his town. Maybe I'm not telling this right, and perhaps that doesn't sound very appealing to you, my dear listener, but we're going to see this movie, Mr. Merlin and I. Here's a little historical fact that, that has, has, I think, the both of us kind of blown away. It was 100 years ago this week that the 19th Amendment was passed through Congress. Actually, I'm not sure whether the ratification process was completed 100 years ago this week or whether it just got through Congress before they, the states had to ratify it. But either way, it's only been 100 years in the United States of America wherein women could actually vote. That's, uh, that's pretty astounding and, and, and really not to our credit. Then again, if you lived in Saudi Arabia, even today, and you're a woman, you wouldn't be able to vote. Of course, (laughs) what elections do they actually conduct? Well, I guess the whole thing comes under the heading of better late than never. Also under the better late than never heading comes the fact that uh, yours truly finally caught on television this past week, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Well, that's a lie. I I caught about 40% of it. Now, Frank Capra was a hell of a director, and Jimmy Stewart was a hell of an actor, and Gene Arthur is a hell of an actress. And for my money, Claude Rains steals the picture, no matter which actor you put him up against. And there's a lot to like about Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, and I have to say, when we got to the end, I uh, did understand why his detractors referred to Frank Capra's efforts as Capricorn. 
yeah, the finish was pretty corny and, and, and unrealistic and overly idealistic. And I thought a bit silly. But you know what? I guess I need to start and watch it all the way through before I render full judgment. And you know what? If any of you out there want to offer up an opinion on the movie classic Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, by all means do so by dropping us a line at info at radioparallax.com. I also encourage you to share your opinion about the Fresh Air program, which aired last Tuesday featuring Andrew Morantz, whose article in The New Yorker talks about how online extremists have hijacked the American conversation through the use of social media. Now, if you're going to offer an opinion on this topic, you, you should actually listen to the show. And in our opinion, that's a pretty good idea. I was quite fascinated by uh, the details of um, how Mr. Morantz looked up some people that were basically producing memes to help Donald Trump of the arch-conservative type and watching how they could use social media to get these things mainstreamed and to get these things, you know, being virally shared. This is truly a process that is disturbing, this use of social media. They pointed out in their discussion that Mark Zuckerberg and others at Facebook uh, try and frame this as a free speech issue along the lines of, well, do you want free speech or not? A few days back, I listened to Fareed Zachariah, that blowhard going off on that very topic at great length, suggesting to his listenership that, well, if you think that Mark Zuckerberg being a uh, stepping in to, to censor what you're going to be allowed to see and hear is a great idea, would you feel the same way if, if it was Rupert Murdoch? And of course, as we pointed out on Radio Parallax many times over the years, how you frame the question has everything to do with the subsequent discussion and whether it'll be a meaningful one. Marantz pointed out that uh, a lot of engineers at Facebook and people that understand how the process works have gone on record as saying, you know, it's not just a matter of free speech or not free speech. We do have an ability to influence who people will be able to reach out to on social media. And by simply placing some limitations on that, they can prevent some guy in his living room with a hundred of his peeps charging onto the internet in mass, causing something to trend, getting real news people, people's attention, and mainstreaming these memes that they have just basically made up. I'd be willing to wager that some of you like myself, did bump up against uh, some of these things that showed up on facial, uh, that showed up on social media, alleging that, uh, well, for example, Hillary Clinton has Parkinson's disease and or she's very, very ill. We, uh, we tend to agree with the New York Times, which noted recently that when Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey decided to ban political advertising on his platform, that represented one small step for Jack, one giant leap for tweet kind. The time notes that social media has become a cesspool of lies leveraged by dishonest politicians and foreign influence services to manipulate and polarize the U.S. electorate, as Russia did during the 2016 presidential campaign. And of course, a lot of people have tried to point out, like Greg Palast, you don't need Russia to pull this sort of thing off. Right-wing cranks here in America, along with, you know, paid political operatives on the right are able to accomplish quite a bit on their own. The Times went on to note that Dorsey acknowledged that paid ads on social media can rapidly micro-target misleading information to voters on a massive scale. 
which is a powerful tool that today's democratic infrastructure may not be prepared to handle. Hello? It's that whole big data micro-targeting thing that makes this so insidious and so dangerous. The Times noted this was a bold and epic poke at Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg, who on the same day said he'd continue to accept paid political ads even if they contained outright lies. Of course, we should add, the devil always is in the details. And once you start deciding, like they have at Twitter, that they're not going to have, you know, the sky's the limit on what can be passed out in the way of information, it gets right down to, well, then what do you allow and what do you hold back on? According to 10.media.com, which we suspect probably has a bit of a high-tech bias, Twitter's ad ban is already a mess. Along with campaign ads, the company says it will prohibit issue ads pertaining to politicized topics like climate change, taxes, healthcare, immigration, and national security. But they note, what about ads selling SUVs, beef, or single-family homes in sprawling suburban neighborhoods? These two have political import. Of course, I I do note that um, whenever limited steps I had a friend of mine take from me on Facebook, which unfortunately I'm still on, not for long, but I'm still on as of now, apparently did confuse them a bit as to what uh, what my likes and dislikes are. One paid ad showed up recently noting that uh, there was a group out there that's going to counter all those anti-BDS people who are trying to hold Israel accountable for some of its uh, misbehavior. Anyway, this group that is trying to stand up and oppose the BDS movement, which stands for Boycott, Divest, Sanctions, noted in defense regarding Israel that Abraham was promised by God this land. And they were therefore putting together care packages to send to people in Israel to show their support. You know, it's worth about a minute or two, I think, to, to take a look at the God promised us this land argument that's so often served up. I don't truly know whether my Portuguese ancestry allows me to claim the Phoenicians as some of my forefathers. It is a matter of record that the Phoenician people did by virtue of the fact they were the ancient world's best sailors, get all over the place in the Mediterranean and even went all the way around Africa long before the Portuguese accomplished that feat by about mm, 2,000 years. But they did have trading posts in what is today Portugal and Spain and really all over the Mediterranean. I might well have some Phoenicians on my family tree. It should be noted that the Phoenicians were what the Greeks called them. That's their Greek name for them, the Phoenicians. The Hebrew people... The Israelites had a different name for them. They called them the Canaanites. And when they came upon Canaan in the Jordan River Valley, they um, put in play this idea that, well, that's the land of milk and honey that God promised promises us. It's right over there. Take a look. Ignoring, of course, the fact that there are already people living there. Now, the Israelites, uh, well, then they then attacked them. You know, Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho and all that, and the walls came tumbling down and drove them out to the coast where they set up trading posts and became known as the Phoenicians and the progenitors of today's Lebanon, basically. So uh, if it's a matter of record that Abraham was promised the land by God himself, then at least some of my people were the ones that the Israelites served up the eviction notice on. Anyway, to make a long story short, I don't think that's a very good argument. And I guess it's time that I have to confess on this program after all these years that a good number of listeners have assumed just assumed 
over the years that that yours truly was, in fact, Jewish. And what do you know? My cousin Mike, the genealogist in the family, took a look back and found us a nice Jewish girl. So, while I confess that my credentials as a member of the tribe are not strong, they are there. Although I would add, does not give him any special prerogatives to be critical of the state of Israel. But I guess the point of all that is that uh, Facebook, you know, doesn't necessarily have all of our numbers completely dialed in. I noted when I fired up my computer the other day that a message appeared noting, for my benefit, that Microsoft is empowering the next generation of elite gamers. I presume they thought I would be glad to hear this. But au contraire, I would say to you, if you are an elite gamer, I would say to you, please get a real life. Let's pep things up, Mr. McMillan. We can always do that by going to the good, the bad, and the ugly, I hope. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for self, well, this last week, actually, for self-centeredness with the news that Donald Trump reported that he did visit Arlington National Cemetery, I presume in conjunction with the Veterans Day commemoration. As for his reaction to seeing all of those uh, white crosses laid out in those green fields, Donnie Jr. said he thought about his family's sacrifices. And I guess if you think about it, the family did have to make some sacrifices. I'm sure Grandpapa Fred Trump did have to pick up the phone and make some phone calls to his, you know, local friendly doctors to, you know, examine Donald Sr. and find those bone spurs that, alas, kept him from being, kept him from serving in the military. And of course, you know, Donald had to sacrifice a lot of his free time to actually go down and visit the doctor to come away with this diagnosis, which kept him from serving in the military. Remember how it was back in the 90s? Everybody kind of looked at Bill Clinton, at least the conservative elements, and referred to him as a draft dodger, because instead of serving in the military, Bill Clinton was exercising his <laughs> his uh, Fulbright scholarship, I believe, and, of course, student deferment. But, you know, when's the last time you heard a conservative refer to uh, a president as being a draft dodger? It's been a while. Oh, there is a part two to this this Donald Trump Jr. story. It does turn out that the wealthy son, heir, and namesake of the real estate mogul and U.S. president told Fox News, quote, I wish my name was Hunter Biden so I could go abroad and make millions off my father's presidency, unquote. Note to Don Jr. Joe Biden doesn't have a presidency to make money off of. Anyway, moving right along, it was a bad week last week month, I guess you'd say, for skeptics after new data revealed that the month of October was, in fact, the hottest October ever recorded globally. Temperatures were 1.24 degrees Fahrenheit warmer than the average between 1981 and 2010. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for American knowledge of geography with the news that a Puerto Rican man was asked by CVS employees to show his immigration papers before buying cold medicine. 
Jose Guzman Payano, who is a student at Indiana's Purdue University, said he repeatedly explained to the pharmacy's staff that Puerto Rico is a U.S. territory. But they in turn rejected both his Puerto Rican driver's license and his passport as valid forms of ID. Apparently, a CVS spokeswoman has apologized. And speaking of warm weather, as we were a moment ago, uh, I was in my backyard a couple days ago when the temperature was hovering around 80. The East Bay Times said that 81 was the all-time record for this date. And I, I don't know. I don't know whether we hit it or not. We were awfully close. And although I got to say, this Palm Springs-like weather is, is very pleasant walking around outside in a t-shirt, even though it's like the second week in November. The fact that it's this warm and not raining is, a, is of some concern. I mean, you know, it's nice being down in the Mojave Desert if all you're doing is enjoying the fall and winter climate, but it doesn't rain down there and doesn't get cold and cloudy and wet, and that's why it's so warm and pleasant. As we record this program, it seems we have at least another week with zero rain in the forecast. Meteorologists are saying we shouldn't panic yet, but, you know, seeing the droughts we faced here in California in recent years, people are getting nervous. I'm getting nervous. The historical average between October 1st and November 10th for San Jose is 1.23 inches of rain. It has, in fact, received 0.01 inches. Sacramento gets 1.53 inches normally, historically. It's gotten zero. Looks like the ski resorts uh, bought a big splashy section in the the local newspaper touting uh, all the ski areas that are are local here in Northern California. And it's great that we do have all those resources available to us, but if it don't rain, it ain't going to snow. And if there's no snow, there ain't going to be a whole lot of skiing, except where they, you know, make their own snow. Anyway, let's not panic yet. And let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. (laughs) 